Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Mike Force Podcast. It is, of course, uh, there's no other host. This is my podcast, the Mike Force Podcast. It's Mike G. So, hey, guys, on the, the topic of Mike Force, a lot of you guys think I'm very egotistical because um, I named the podcast after myself. But it's actually Mike Force named after the quick reaction forces of Green Berets and Montagnards that quick reacted to Mac V. Sog in Vietnam. There's a lot of good history there. Got John Stryker Meyer. Make sure you check out his Sog cast. That's Sierra Oscar Golf on all podcast platforms. Jocko did the introduction there. Um, really inspiring guy. Uh, did, did a podcast with Andy Stump on the Cleared Hot podcast as well. We'll have him in the studio soon, but we'll talk about Mike Force and about Mac V. Sog. Um, man, lots of stuff to talk about today on all AR-15s. We're talking AR-15s, and I, I want to motivate law enforcement, first responders, and civilians to listen to this podcast, especially those law enforcement officers who are trying to get more information about the benefits of ARs on duty please listen to this podcast, spread the word, make sure you subscribe as well. The cool thing about this podcast right now, today, is you can go to YouTube and go to the Mike Force podcast and see like me in person, but I'm going to do a lot of interactive stuff today. I'm going to try to make it audible or audio friendly, but I'm also going to hold ARs in my hand and do all this stuff so I can educate you in best practice. You know, we have this um, new motto for Phil Craft Survival called Operate the Outdoors. And the idea is I want you to thrive in your environment. I don't want you to s survive in your environment. And when I think about AR-15s, especially in rural environments, in hunting and self-defense, um, it's a significant benefit to you. And there's so many reasons why you should have the AR platform. If you don't have one, you should have one. Um, but I'll talk about those reasons today on the podcast and so much more. If you haven't listened to the recent, um, most recent Andy Stump Cleared Hot podcast, uh, had a podcast here in-house where we recorded two segments, one for Phil Craft Survival on the Phil Craft Survival channel on YouTube, as well as the Cleared Hot podcast, which is also available on YouTube and everywhere that podcasts live. We talked about Joe Rogan. We talked about suppression. We talked about wingsuit flying, rally, all this cool stuff. Make sure you go check that out. All right, guys. So I have a slew of questions as well when it comes to AR platforms. But first, let's get into the meat and potatoes on ARs. So a lot of you guys ask me, hey, what's the best setup? A lot of times at courses when I'm asked this question in person, the first thing I think about is like, What's the desired outcome or objective? If it's self-defense, um, the, the next question is, where do you live? Do you live in a house in an urban area? Do you live in an apartment complex? Do you live in a rural place where you have lots of land? And what's the intended objective of owning an AR-15 for you? Is it three-gun competition? Is it two-gun competition? Is it PRS-style matches, so you want an SBR? Or is it home defense and self-defense? All of my answers for you are going to be different. Now, remember, I grew up in the Army. I mean, from the ages of 17 till of recent, really, I grew up in the Army. And when I started off in the Army, we had M4s. We just got M4s in. I went to basic training with M16s, but we had M4s. And 
when I think about my military experience in special operations and combat and war, my gun changed often depending on the circumstance. The AR-15 is just a platform. All of the benefit of that platform come from optics, come from barrel twist, come from ammunition, come from accessories that you're going to mount on the Picatinny rail. So often the first thing you have to do is assess, what am I using this for? If you're a guy who lives, for example, in an urban area, like a metropolitan city in America, and you go to the range a couple times a month, and you shoot at a 25-yard range, and you really don't do anything else besides that, well, the answer for you is very different. I would say for you, uh, I want you to have anything between 11.5 to 16 inches uh, with your muzzle brake, so a 14.5-inch barrel, and have a red dot optic, an Aimpoint Micro T, an Aimpoint CCO, like an M68, which is just a red dot, no variable magnification, And that's important because I want you to save money and not have to buy a $3,000 optic for your $1,500 rifle. So let's talk about the gun itself, the AR itself, and talk about nomenclature. Let me go ahead and pick one of my ARs right here up real quick. So I'm going to pick up this AR-15 and use this to present the conversation because this is not a AR-15 in that it's got uh, or it's chambered in 545. Uh, I'm sorry, 556. Five, I just was holding the 545. Five. In 556, five, this is chambered in 300 blackout, but is an AR 15 platform. So everything besides the bolt essentially is an AR. Uh, the bolt is obviously chambered for 30 cal or 300 blackout. So I'm going to use this because it's a shorter form factor to discuss the options and we're going to talk about it. So just in basic nomenclature, you should know that AR-15s are basically the same. They haven't changed much since the stoner days. I mean, yes, there are different advantages and different things that have come along in technology um, that have made specific types of equipment like ambidextrous uh, mag releases, like different triggers, uh, one stage and two stage, um, different grip modules like Magpul makes the accessories for the AR, and has changed the game. So there's a lot of different things that have um, component-wise changed the AR, but at its core, it's remained the same. So this is a AR-15 with a mil-spec tube. Now, this is a folding collapsible buttstock, meaning it's a law tactical folder that folds on itself. But let's just talk about this tube. This tube right here in the back which is a mil-spec tube, which has five points of adjustment. This tube has the travel means to, um, let me best say this in uh, layman's terms. When the gun goes boom, the bolt carrier group, which includes the bolt and the BCG, go back to the rear and go into this tube with a spring and a buffer that are located in the back of this. What that means is it transfers all the energy after the boom into the back of the gun instead of like a bolt-action rifle where all that energy is transferred through the barrel, the buttstock, and the gun into your shoulder. So I'm saying that because you should understand if I held this gun, even with a 300 blackout version of it with a heavy caliber uh, round, you're not going to get a lot of recoil, rearward movement. 
yes, you will get muzzle flip from the front of the gun, but the gun will actually dip down like this. And if you're watching YouTube, it's going to dip down like that because all the energy is transferring back into it, which means you can get away with things with this AR that you could not get away with in a conventional rifle. Let me give you an example. In a conventional rifle, all of the fundamentals are centered around shooting the gun from prone, right? Like when you talk about the position of your body on the rifle itself, like you were taught in the infantry, in the Army, in the Marine Corps, to put your nose on the charging handle, to get a good index spot on the optic and your eye relief, which is the distance between your eye and the back of the ocular lens. You were told to take your cheek and, and get a good stock weld with your cheek for consistency. But in an AR platform, none of that really means anything, especially when you stand up off the ground. So the benefit of an AR platform is it's certainly accurate in a stable, static position, but it's also advantageous because you could pick the gun up and you could shoot the gun from a standing position or a moving and walking or running position and have a stable platform that's not going to, like if you picked up your granddad's 300 blackout and shot it, it would literally, you know, it would scope punch you in the face and then you would have a hard time getting back on target and finding the target in your optic, right? But if you do it with this, you don't have those issues. It's really forgiving, okay? So don't be afraid of this platform because the gas impingement system, which takes gas through the barrel into a tube and really goes down into a basically the bolt key and then knocks the uh, the gas knocks the bolt carrier group to the rear into the buffer and spring assembly it's super forgiving that's why it's good for standing and shooting that's why if you if you uh, used a car 15 in Vietnam as a Mac V saw guy you had a good tactical advantage even over the AK-47, despite it being a more powerful weapon system, it didn't have that system. It, it used gas tappet or gas, I was gas tappet. Uh, there is gas piston as well, but it was gas tappet. So you felt that a lot of that recoil and it's hard to get back on target. So when I am talking about this weapon system, there's a few things that I want to vector you in that mean something to you. They should mean something to you. And that is if you care about accuracy and you care about optimizing this weapon system for performance. Now, a lot of guys don't care, right? If you're using, and, and I don't mean that facetiously, I mean like a lot of guys just don't care because they just want to shoot paper on the weekends and they don't care about reaching out uh, and engaging a target out to a thousand yards, right? So one of the, the, the recipes here is the combination or the optimization of barrel length, barrel twist, and the optic, and the bullet weight. Okay, so that's a lot of stuff. I know it's a lot, especially if you're listening to this podcast. But let me break down each for you to make this a little simpler. Okay, I, the analogy I use in training classes, I'm going to go ahead and set this down. The analogy I use in training classes is this analogy built around football when I watched it. So the last time I watched football was when Joe Montana was throwing to Jerry Rice. That's the last time I gave a crap about football. Now I just don't give two craps. Like the Super Bowl now, uh, I don't give a shit. I didn't even know what was going on. So I, it's just me, right? Um, I do like football players. I got football players in my network. 
and I like football teams and their ability to lead and the sportsmanship, but the corporate model, the politics surrounding it, it's lost my appeal. Um, I consult with football teams. I consult with football players. Uh, I love them, but I don't like the politics surrounding uh, this PC culture around football. So when I think about football, I think Joe Montana. So bear with me with the analogy. If you took Joe Montana's arm and he picked up a Nerf football and he chucked it like he threw in an NFL ball, he would over-rotate or put too much ass behind the ball. And what would happen? Well, the ball would waffle. It, you know, it would be quack, 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 right? It would, do, it would look like a duck. So the reason that's important is because the barrel length is Joe Montana's arm. The barrel twist is the hands of Joe Montana. The bullet weight is the football. So if you take a whack combination, like let's say you took a 55-grain bullet, which is the bullet normal people buy at gun shops, and then they go to the range to shoot paper. That's a lightweight bullet in comparison to a, for example, one in seven twist, which is a pretty fast rotation. And a 14.5-inch barrel, let's say you got 14.5 inches of length in barrel with a one in seven twist, that means the bullet will rotate every seven inches one full rotation. So bear with me in the math here. That means in a 14.5, you'll get to two full rotations. So it's like Joe Montana holding on to the football and not letting go until the right timing. So, but if it's, if it's too fast of a rotation, meaning he's putting too much ass behind it and it's a lightweight bullet, he's over-rotating the lightweight bullet. So if you swap out a, let's say you swap out that Nerf football for a pro leather NFL ball, it's the optimized weight. Maybe it's 70 grain, 75 grain, even 77 grain LR, long range. And then when he throws it, it's the perfect combination. So there is an optimization which affects trajectory, right? So again, it's bullet weight, which is measured in grains. It's barrel length measured in inches. And it's barrel twist. If it's one in seven, it's one full rotation every seven inches. If it's one in nine, which is also common, it's one rotation every nine inches. Okay? So with that being said, not to bore you to death with like the technical aspects of this, let me just tell you what the optimal length bullet uh, twist and bullet weight are. It's a round. This is roundabout. There are ballistic calculators which could give you the exact data and the exact technical specs of this, but generally don't go below 11.5 inches. Now, uh, Triarc, for example, has proved out with certain bullet weights that 13.9, I think 13.9 is their optimal setup. Um, I'm sorry, not 13.9. Uh, I'm speaking out of my ass right here. It's like a 11.9, something like that. So the reason I'm telling you that is because there is a point of diminishment the shorter you get. If you shoot a 10-inch or a 7-inch, you're going to lose out on optimizing that trajectory, the capability of the round at distance, because it's too short. So it would be like Joe Montana releasing the football too soon. So again, the optimized barrel length, according to Special Operations Command, 
is 11.5, 11.5 inches. I prefer not to go shorter than 11.5 because I want to take advantage of the distance. But I mean, there's not much difference between a 10.5 and 11.5. It's an inch. I mean, depending on who you are, an inch matters. But uh, in this world of carbines, it's not a big deal. So when you look at 11.5, you want about a one in seven twist bullet, or I'm sorry, barrel rate and twist. Now, usually you're not going to get anything other than that because the military, what the Defense Department is using, what the military is using, is generally what you see the civilian market using. Not because they're copying the military market, it's because the manufacturers, the primary ma- manufacturers like Colt and Fabric Nationale, FN, are developing or manufacturing in troves these barrels. So they sell them to the Defense Department and they sell them on the commercial. Um, in the commercial space as well. So I would not go shorter than 11.5. I would not be any faster or any slower than a one in seven twist. And I would optimize my bullet weight at 62 uh, grains or higher. Um, Some interesting history is why we went to, in the military, a one in nine to a one in seven twist. As far as I understand it, I mean, there could be some people reply in the comments if you're one of those guys who understand a, a little bit more history than myself. But as a weapons specialist in special forces, I was taught that we went from one in nine to one in seven via NATO barrel twist because we needed to rotate a heavier round that was known as the 62 grain green tip, a steel core penetrator that was used to defeat Russian armor, this light, thin armor like steel pot helmets. And so 55 grain was just a little bit too light. When we went heavy at 62 grain, we needed to increase the ratio uh, or the turn rate or the speed, and we went to one in seven. And then that further developed and evolved into us using different types of ammunition, including 68 grain, 70 grain barn, 75 grain Hornaday, or, or 77 uh, grain long range, which I've used all of those, by the way, in combat. So now that we got that knocked out of the way, let's talk about the importance of the optic in relationship to that optimization. When I ask the question like, hey, what are you going to use the gun for? That's really important because this gun, for example, this is an AR-15 platform chambered and 300 blackout. This is used in vehicle defense. I mean, it's self-defense, but it's vehicle defense. Why? Because I want a heavier caliber round at a specific muzzle velocity to punch through glass, including the front windshield, and steel, which includes the door and this and the soft skin of a vehicle. Because I want to be able to defend my life, and I'm thinking about defending my life from the inside out, not just outside in, right? So that matters, because now my setup, which I'm using a Vortex UH-1 in this case, is going to be very different than a long-range capable gun. This is a short-barrel BCM. Uh, I think BCM makes the best carbines in the world. This specific BCM is, this one's a nine-inch barrel, and it's a 20-round magazine. Not many accessories besides the front sight post minus the rear, and it's, it's just a backup sight for reference with a UH-1. So I don't have to be able to reference a reticle to take advantage of the 
optimization of the trajectory at distance. Now, this gun, according to the field manual in the Army, is capable of hitting point targets at 550 meters, 800 meters area, 550 meters point, which means it's generally accurate out to 500 yards or 500 meters. I'm a meter guy because I grew up with meters, the metric system in the Army as a sniper. So when we look at 500 meters, that's a lot of distance. That's five football fields, guys. So at five football fields, here's the question. If you want to take advantage of the capability of the weapon system, can you identify a threat at 500 yards, at five football fields, with a red dot optic, with no magnification? The answer is no, you can't. I know you can't because we, we studied and tested this in the military. Can you identify them at 100 yards? Maybe not. Uh, it would be, be very difficult to do. So the optic for you, depending on your objective, matters. So a red dot in these optics has a unit of measure called a minute of angle. It's an angular unit of measure that gets bigger and broader at distance. That's why it's an angular unit of measure. So it represents one inch at 100 yards or five inches at 500 yards or 10 inches at 1,000 yards. So that means a one-minute capable gun, a gun that could shoot five rounds in a one-inch group at 100 yards would be capable of shooting a 10-inch group at 1,000 yards. But there's obviously things that you have to account for, including environmental factors, altitude density, which includes barometric pressure, relative humidity, ambient air temperature, and environmental factors like wind, right? So if you shoot at 1,000 yards with this gun and the bullet is subsonic, which it certainly is, it's below the uh, speed of sound, it's most certainly not going to give you a good group at 1,000 yards. But it means when it's supersonic and it's traveling at a fast rate of speed in its trajectory up to 500 yards, you could shoot a five-inch group at 500 yards, depending on the wind. But in theory, that's how it works. So that just means, all that jargon means, you need to pay attention to the optic for the intended purpose. So if it's a short-range gun, I recommend using something like a Micro-T, a Vortex UH-1. I mean, the, the primary uh, op optics I use is Leupold, Vortex, and Leopold, Leopold, Vortex, and Aimpoint are primarily the ones I use. I have a Night Force optic, but I generally don't use Night Force. It just depends on the setup. Uh, we're talking AR-15s. So on this, I got a UH-1. Let me get another gun for you. On this particular setup, which is my 11.5, which is suppressed, you can see the suppressor here, um, I have run a Micro-T. So again, this is a long-range capable gun, but I'm using it for short range. I typically teach with this. Uh, I would use this for self-defense. Um, quick snapshot in the ocular lens so I could reference the dot to be able to engage rapidly in, in close proximity. And then I have this gun. Oh, let me pick up this one real quick. I have this Leupold CQBSS one-to-one by eight power variable optic. Um, I will tell you that this optic is very expensive. It's only available to law enforcement, I believe. Law enforcement and mill. Um, I have this because I teach law enforcement and I use this as a long range capable rifle. So this is like my DMR, my designated marksmanship rifle. 
when I was in special operations, me and Kevin Owens, depending on the mission set, would, would discuss this often in the, in the kit room, in the team room. We talk about like, hey, when we get to the rooftop, um, we, we carry in our Eberl stock bags a bagged out SR-25 or 300 Win Mag, depending on the op, a Mark 13. So it got to a point where depending on how we were infiltrating, if we were walking uh, seven to 10 kilometers, which is miles and miles to surreptitiously enter a target building, then we didn't want to bag out a heavy gun. But we certainly wanted the capability to reach out and touch targets. That's why we carried a gun like this, 11.5, able to reach out and touch a little bit further, but we had a variable optic. Now, here's the considerations for taking advantage of the capability of the gun to reach out and affect a target. When I used to go train in Canadian Texas at Todd Hodnitz as a sniper, we would certainly bring our SBRs and we would shoot out to a thousand yards and hit still at a thousand yards. One of the arguments I heard in debate was, Mike, that's a great gun, but that gun doesn't affect a target at a thousand yards. And then I went, huh, let me, let me calculate the dope the data on previous engagement. Let me look at the ballistic calculator. So I pulled out my Kestrel and then we calculated it, looking at the feet per second and most certainly foot pounds of energy and determining what the round was doing at a thousand yards because we were hitting still. I mean, we could hear the hits on still at a thousand yards and that feels significant, but is it really? So outside of the foot pounds of energy argument, at 1,000 yards, a 5.56 round, which is exiting this gun at about 2,500 feet per second, is hitting steel at 1,000 yards at about 900 feet per second. Just to give you a correlation or a, con- a contrast to that, a 45 caliber pistol out of the barrel is moving about the same. Does that mean it has the same amount of energy? Because that does mean, foot-pounds of energy does mean something. No. But it means, do you want to get shot in the chest at 900 feet per second? The answer is no. But it also means if you had to take a shot at 1,000 yards, you could. I have taken shots on enemy combatants at long-range distances in gunfights in the middle of the daytime with a short barrel thinking, why don't I have a variable optic? So if you're going to go rural... If you're going to use it in self-defense on your property because you have land, if you're a law enforcement officer who's a state patrol officer, especially like the California Highway Patrol, who doesn't use optics at all on AR-15s, you need to have a variable optic. Because not only do you need the ability to positively identify a target, which I think is the PC argument. I mean, I don't care about PC arguments, but I, but I want to vector these, the PC culture into the debate if you're a law enforcement officer, for example, with the California Highway Patrol, who I've taught before at their academy, I've taught their academy instructors. I love those guys, and big shout out to those guys. Uh, one of their uh, guys actually works for me. If you're one of those guys, and you're deciding on the argument or the, uh, the debate of why officers should have optics on ARs, it's, in, it's the liability. Because if you're on a highway, which is a big linear target, It's a fatal funnel that goes on for miles and miles and miles. And you pull your AR out and you're using your naked eye on iron sights. That's not a tactical advantage. We talk about this argument of tactical advantage all the time. 
Like there is old school dudes who will argue me until they're purple in the face that you only need iron sights. Um, yeah, I would say you only need iron sights until the optic was invented. How about those apples? Because the tactical advantage you have is one, you could positively identify the threat. Two, you could hold proper dope or the likely the hold over to engage accurately on the target, which is also a reduction in liability. And even better than that, when you miss or don't have the intended effect on target where your placement was originally, let's just say it that way, then you have the ability to reference another hold based on what you observed in the optic. So instead of just going, oh, I missed, let me just wing another shot, you can go, I missed uh, one mil to the left, now I can hold one mil to the right, compensate for it, and you'll hit center. So there's a lot of argument and debate of why you need optics, but let's just be honest. If you're looking for the tactical advantage, you need the optic. Again, long-range capability, taking advantage of, di- of distance, primarily with positively identifying a target, because I could roll this to eight power, which is a lot of magnification. When I went to sniper school, we had uh, 10 power optics, the Mark III Alpha, that were attached to Remington Long Action 700s, the M24 uh, sniper weapon system. It's a deer rifle. That was the sniper rifle I learned to go to sniper school with, and that's primarily what we used. We've advanced a lot since then. So, when, I mean, Kevin Owens used a musket uh, in sniper school in the 1800s. That was a joke on Kevin Owens. So, when I'm looking at a variable optic, a couple things. Use a horse reticle. There's a debate about reticles. Use a mill radian horse reticle. Uh, I see the debates on sniper hide on the forum. If you're a sniper hide um, uh, person, I am too. I grew up on sniper hide, even as a sniper on active duty. Um, there's debates in forums over this Christmas tree reticle. It's so busy. It's so stupid. Well, it's stupid if you don't understand how to use it. But let me take my cues from Kevin Owens, who changed the entire sniper weapon systems and the sniper culture in special operations with Todd Hodnett. And a couple other names, the, the Chance, uh, the Jack, uh, these are first names. I'm not using their last name because I don't know if they want me to use them. But uh, Sean's Kirkwood's of the world, who works for me as well, that changed and evolved uh, sniper capabilities via the equipment they used. Here's the short of it. A mil radian is a refined unit of measure, especially when shooting out at distance over the MOA, which I grew up with, the minute of angle. You have reference point at 0.2 mils in your reticle, in a Horus reticle, versus quarter adjustments and minutes of angle in your optic. It's just a more nat's-ass way of being able to engage, especially with thin reticles. Reticles used to be 0.2 mils or above, like thick. Like you would quarter a pasty, a one inch by one inch pasty at 100 yards, and you couldn't even see the pasty. Now we have the right technology. I say technology, but the right evolution in these optics. So Horace reticle, a Kestrel, an AB Kestrel, an applied ballistics Kestrel is one of the best pieces of equipment that you could use because it gives you the dope calculated off of the bulb that's measuring, measuring altitude density and even can calculate for wind. But what's cool about that is it goes with your gun 
And your dope will certainly change, especially at elevation, but you have it all referenceable on the AB Kestrel, the calculator. So if you're asking me what kind of optic, man, just get a variable optic. One to six, Vortex makes great Razor HDs. Leupold makes great variable optics. Schmidt and Benner, um, expensive. Um, Night Force, great uh, optics. And SIG. SIG has the new Tango optics, which I hope to get my hands on soon and test them. But I've shot them before, and they're great, especially for the money and the value. You can't really go wrong because the glass, it's like jewelry. All the top glass manufacturers are in the top tactical manufacturers. So you're not going to get a discrepancy in glass. I mean, Bushnell even makes great glass. One of my favorite pieces of glass is a Bushnell, uh, I believe it's a 1 to 8.5. Great piece of glass. So I also want my bullet drop compensator to be mil radians to make the adjustments. And I want a good ocular lens. Uh, You're not going to know if you have a good ocular lens until you get on the gun. What I mean is I want the ability to get my eye relief on the gun with not a lot of vignetting or a lot of time to get that. And so when I look at the front of the gun, that's going to be a small objective lens. And then the uh, ocular lens, like even on the CQBSS, it has a pretty large lens. So I could snapshot this optic like a, a, a red dot with no magnification. And that's super important. Okay, so enough about uh, optics. Let's talk about accessories. The accessory world is massive in the AR market. You have key mod now. You have Picatinny rails on top. I don't like quad rails. It's not that I don't like them aesthetically. It's, you know, whether I was using a 416, a Colt uh, AR, it's just weight. It's a weight consideration. I mean, the old Knight's Armament Colts used to have uh, forward rail systems that went on when you pulled down you pulled down the front of the gun and then inserted the plastic into it and they were flimsy and floppy. Now, these are adhered to the upper receiver and so it's very stable. So your LA-5, your Pac-15, your lights, they're never going to change. They're not going to move around. And so I like the stability in these platforms and these weapon systems. Now, I am fond of what works, right? You can't convince me otherwise if what I use works. So yes, many ARs use the same manufacturing processes, but some stand out to me. BCM, great AR. SIG, great AR. ZEV, great AR. So I don't mind because I'm not beholden to any manufacturers that uh, make guns. Even SIG, I, I work with SIG, but if their, if their stuff sucks, I'm not afraid to advertise that it sucks to them. I'm not going to be disrespectful and go, don't ever buy this piece of crap. I'm going to go, Hey, Sig, I'd like to talk to your engineers, and I'd like to figure out a solution to this problem. Well, all the manufacturers that I just spouted off, they don't have problems because they have smart, smarter people than me working for them. They have former unit guys, former special operations guys, the Dan Horners of the world that do this for a living for the companies. So you, the end result is when you get that gun in your hand, you don't have to worry about it. A lot of guys ask me, like, Mike, what's the AR? BCM. Why? Because it works. I've been using BCM for like six years and they don't pay me. I shoot the crap out of their guns and I've never seen a malfunction. So if you ask me, well, what about a Colt? Sure. If that's what works for you, sure. In the commercial space, in the military space, 
there are a lot of guns that I've used and gas impingement is super reliable. It's one of the reasons why I advocate for gas impingement, even though they're a little bit dirtier, just clean your damn gun. So the accessory world built around this is based on, again, what your intended use is. Look, I teach law enforcement all over the United States. I use these guns for home defense. So my setups are going to vary. This particular setup that you see that has an LA5, it is suppressed. It has a um, long range optic. This is my um, DMR gun. This is what I use to teach for Philcraft Survival, my company. This is what I use to uh, demonstrate, uh, do uh, PRS, do long range stuff. This is that intended purpose. Always I'm running suppressed though, uh, except for my 300 blackout um, because I don't want any more real estate on the front end of the gun. But here I don't mind. Okay. Let me get my other AR. This AR is different. This is my home defense gun. Now, uh, why I don't have an LA5? Well, this is my snapshot gun where I grab the gun and I go to work and I know my house, right? I also want to be able to, I have a two-story house. So when I'm on my second floor, I want to be able to illuminate down into the space like an overwatch position. But this is the gun that I teach for short range and CQB. Now, this would not be a low-vis carbine or a reduced signature carbine for low-vis ops. Uh, this is just my setup for self-defense. So I got a light adhered to it. Notice I didn't have a light on my long-range gun. Why? Because it's for long range. So I'm taking that fancy, nice, surefire um, light, and I'm putting it on the guns that I need lights for. So I'm going to run this on my home defense gun always, again, suppressed, because I don't want to destroy my eardrums in a gunfight. And a lot of people ask me, like, Mike, why don't you use backup iron sights? Well, a couple of reasons. If I, because I'm not in the middle of Afghanistan, that's one reason. Two, if I'm using this, likely in the nighttime, uh, likely that I don't have the time if this optic is down to flip to an iron sight. And I don't need a point of reference for an iron sight when I have a nice little tight window and a very reliable micro T that I've never seen fail. Like the battery life on this is like 100 years. That's an exaggeration, but it's a long time. So again, different strokes for different folks, but these are my setups. All right, guys, I want to spend the last part of this podcast just to talk. Let's answer your questions because you guys asked me a buttload of questions on my Instagram. When I go and reference these questions, I truly want to go to these questions and answer them for you because I think it's important. Uh, it's important because some of you guys have very good uh, constructive questions. What BCM AR-15 do you recommend for someone new to ARs? The 11.5. Get the 11.5 lightweight recce gun that's used for distance. I mean, they have different variations in barrel length, but any AR-15 from BCM is going to be good. But I like the 11.5. That's my favorite. Um, how would you piece together your AR if you lived in a big city, an urban AR, so to speak, compared to if you lived in a rural? Um, as discussed, I would use 11.5 would be my minimum length. Now, if I lived in an urban tight area, I might not run a suppressor or a can because that, that gives you a little bit more advantage. Uh, I would run a micro T. I would certainly run a surefire light. I'd have the ability to switch on and off. And if you're a nods guy, I would run a uh, infrared laser. There's a whole bunch of companies that are offering this to the civilian population. So again, different strokes for different folks. But if you're looking for the tactical advantage, then certainly you want Viz light and infrared light tethered to your AR. Um, iron sights or dot optic for close ranges. Look, a lot of people will argue iron sights. Why? Here's the problem. 
an iron sight is usually a black blob of reference. I want a red dot of reference. A lot of people get confused around the red dot. The point of red dots in close proximity is you have something to reference over the target while you maintain target focus. So I don't have to, even looking through the objective lens, I don't have to focus on the red dot. Now, certainly if you're shooting out the distance, you could change that field of focus because you have time. But if I had to do the same thing with an iron sight, again, it's a point of reference, but I'd rather have a red defined dot, or it's going to be a blob in the background of your vision, but I'd rather have, a, I'd rather have that than a black iron sight. Um, here's a rabbit hole over penetration considerations in home defense. Big deal or not something you worry about. Nine mil PCC, PDW, a better option for some living situations. Look, most certainly penetration is a part of the conversation. Look, a lot of rounds, depending on, depending on the, the uh, terminal ballistics, is going to overpenetrate. I've, I've had that problem in combat, and it's, it, it could be dangerous. Uh, I just talked about the uh, situation that happened in California where an officer shot a carbine and went through a, a wall and killed an innocent uh, young girl. So when I'm thinking about home defense, one, I know the areas of my house, but I also don't just bank on that. So do you want a 62 grain green tip that will zip through a person like a laser beam that will go into a wall as a thin, small projectile and do wonky stuff? No. That's why I recommend 70 grain brown tip. Like the, I think it's called the TPX or something like that. I, I apologize, but it's, it's brown tip. That round has very good terminal ballistic effects and not overpenetrating. So yes, it's part of the argument. I, I certainly wouldn't reference nine mil, especially when uh, looking at home defense, but certainly not saying that it's only the AR for home defense. I'm likely to grab my pistol nine mil over anything else uh, in home defense because I don't want to run around the house with an AR. I also like the ability to kind of retract my signature, especially moving around corners by myself. It's different if you got dudes with you doing CQB, but a lot different if you're a singleton doing CQB. All right, um, which length gas systems do you recommend? That is variable, but I'm not an expert at that. Here's what I don't do. Um, because a lot of OEM components in manufacturing is pressed, machine pressed, and I've had, an, let me give you a, an example in a combat where I've screwed this up. 18 Bravo. Commanders and extremist force, force, an assaulter. I maintain all of our guns. I, I teach tactics and CQB and then go and do war. One year, we wanted shorter guns because of CQB considerations. So instead of 14 fives, we wanted to do 10 fives. Um, we got permission from the unit to uh, swap out barrels and use a 10 five and then use a low profile gas block. I had the majority of those, those low-profile gas blocks fail because the gun was overgassed. It was knocking the blocks literally off. And because they were hand-pinned and not machine-pressed, they were coming off. Even with the best lock tight and hammers, it wasn't enough to keep them on. So I like OEM press. So that's the way I roll, guys. Um, let's get down to the bottom of this. I'm going to answer three more questions. All right, zeroing. Oh my gosh. Thank God somebody asked that because I had it on my mind. I lost it. TBI. So um, yes, zeroing is an important factor 
especially depending on the optic that you're running. Like a lot of people go off of a 100-yard zero. The problem with a 100-yard zero is it's difficult, especially running an aim point or a red dot optic, it's difficult to see the dot at 100 yards. So the first question I ask people who are zeroed, what is your verification that you're zeroed? And guys were like, well, I, I just got, I put rounds on paper and if they're close, it's good. No, I mean, very specifically, is it two rounds? Is it three rounds? Is it five rounds? Like, for example, when rounds are made from the factory, you had, you had something called standard deviation. Standard deviation is the discrepancy of gunpowder from round to round in manufacturing measured in muzzle velocity or feet per second. So just taking that, there could be a shift in your zero from round to round, even on a bench rest, based on your standard deviation. Like, think about that. So if you're chasing rounds and you're like, what the hell is going on? I suck. It might not be you. It might be a bad lot of ammo. I've had that. But one thing as a sniper that I've done in, the, in special operations is we studied, hey, what happens when you put 118LR, M118LR, 308, 175 grain into a cold environment and then into a hot bore? And then what does that translate in muzzle velocity and accuracy on target? You're going to get discrepancies depending on the lot. Cheap ammo, standard, uh, standard cheap ammo is going to give you a broader range of standard muzzle deviation, a muzzle vo- velocity deviation. So I want you to pay attention that when you're zeroing, it's a specific uh, solution for the intended objective. Let me give you mine. I like 25-yard zeros. 25-yard gives you normally a 300-yard repeat zero, meaning if you're aiming point of aim, you'll get the same point of impact at 25 and 300 yards. Well, why would you do that? Well, because anything between 25 and 300 yards is usually nominal. Guys in the infantry who shot zero qualifications would know because there's not really deviation in the hold from 25 to 300. So if you look at case studies of SWAT officers using ARs at distance, Nobody's really going beyond a, a couple hundred yards, a hundred yards, really. So if you take a 25-yard zero, you could also see where your rounds are impacting. Again, very profound, because if I could see where they're impacting, that matters, because now I could do a Nats ass accurate hold and make sure I don't have discrepancy bes- between rounds. Um, guys, I love talking about AR-15s. I'm going to have more content on this. I'm doing a part two of this conversation where I'm answering the remainder of your conversations next week. But I wanted to make sure that you subscribe and hit the notification tab, because if you don't, you won't know when I drop this. I usually drop them in the beginning of the week, but sometimes later in the week. Here's what I want to say. Ask your questions below, and all the questions that you ask, I'll try to get to most of them, but the, the smart questions, I'll get to below and answer them so we're engaged here on YouTube. I appreciate you guys tuning into the podcast on the main podcast on Spotify, iTunes, wherever it may live, where you find it. Also on YouTube, if you're not on YouTube or vice versa, make sure you're tagged for both. Love you guys on uh, Phil Craft Survival. Big shout out to Black Rifle Coffee. And if you uh, are interested, make sure you hit up Wolf 21. I just dropped the tactical tincture, which is the CBG version, the upper version that I drop in my coffee, my Black Rifle Coffee every morning. And a BRCC30 gets you 30% on that. BRCC30 gets you 30%.
All right, guys, till next time. Peace. Peace.